4. We are entering this morning into chapter 4. We concluded last week with chapter 3 in this glorious confession of faith, the heart of the Gospel. This declaration that what we confess as Christians is that the Son of God, the divine Son of God, has left the comforts of heaven and entered into this world, this fallen and dark world, in order to rescue for Himself a people. He was raised to glory and He now sits on the throne in the kingdom of heaven. This is the heart of what we confess. The heart of what we believe. This is the heart of what drives us as Christians. This is what sets our hearts on fire and causes us and moves us to spread the glory of God's name in all of the nations. So that is how chapter 3 concluded. But as we enter into chapter 4, we we come to a passage that's, that's rather sobering. We believe in this great confession of faith. And we believe that this Gospel has the power to save. But as Christians and as a people within the church, we are guaranteed to experience and to see people who have embraced this faith leave it. And the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he warns them, warns him about this very thing, in order to prepare him for this reality so that he might respond and the church might respond properly. So I want to begin by reading chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 5. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Now the Spirit expressly says, that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, You have done a miraculous work. And sending Your Son into this world with the mission of bearing on the cross the sin of the world. So that we sinners might have forgiveness and might have reconciliation to You and might be cleansed of our sin and adopted into Your family. This is a glorious Gospel and a glorious truth that we embrace Father, Your Word tells us that people will hear this Gospel and not only reject it, but once embracing it, some will leave it. Father, this can cause us pain and confusion. And we need to know, Lord, what this means for our own faith and for the church. Lord, we pray that as we consider this sobering reality this morning, that we would heed Your warnings. That we would not be shaken in our faith when something like this happens, but we would be prepared for it. Father, we pray that You would hold us fast. That You would keep us in the faith and cause us to persevere unto the end, so that when You call us home or when Christ returns, we would look forward to His coming. We would love 
His appearing because we would see our King coming to bring in the kingdom that we are citizens of. Father, help us to understand these truths, we pray in Christ's name. The 1920s in America were perhaps, arguably, some of the most turbulent times for Christian theology and belief and practice. It was the decade in which the modernist, fundamentalist controversy reached its height. The fundamentalists were a broad group of Christians who held to what they called the fundamentals of the faith. And over time, some of them would morph into what we now call evangelicals. What we refer to as ourselves and what other people, when they are describing Christianity as we know it and practice it, evangelicals. We come from a history of a larger group of people known as the fundamentalists, which eventually diverged into two other groups or movements. These fundamentalists and later evangelicals believed in a literal resurrection of Christ, a literal virgin birth, a literal doctrine of sin that had literal consequences of eternal judgment. These things are real, they believe. They believe that the events in the Bible are historical. They actually happened. There was a dead man raised from the grave. There was a sea that was split in two. They happened. And because of this, they argued, the Christian faith is ultimately grounded in historical events that now call for modern men to respond. To them. We do not subject Scripture to our own experiences. Rather, we are summoned to respond to the historical reality of the resurrected and reigning Christ. And therefore, to bring our experiences under subjection to His Word. Modernists was the name given to Protestant liberal Christians. And that's not a, a derogatory term. That is just a, a statement that, or a, a phrase and a, and a designation that they themselves embraced. Protestant liberal Christianity were known as modernists and they were heavily influenced by enlightenment thinking. They believed that a person's own reason, their own rational capabilities was the supreme authority. All things are brought under subjection to my own thoughts. And my own logical thinking. They believed in a naturalistic world in which the supernatural and miracles do not exist. These things are not real. And therefore the resurrection, for example, could not possibly have happened. And all of the supernatural miracles within the Bible as a consequence were rejected. They argued that the supernatural events in the Old Testament were literary devices, not meant to be taken literally, but meant to be illustrations that simply teach us lessons about life and about God. The virgin birth of Christ was rejected. Of course, the resurrection was denied. And much of what the apostles wrote, they argued in various ways, was heavily influenced by their own culture and must therefore be reinterpreted in light of our own modern experiences and the advances that we have made in science. Perhaps one of the most well-known modernists at the time was a man named Harry Emerson Fosdick. Fosdick was born in Buffalo, New York, 1878. His father had been a teacher there for some 50 years, and his grandfather before him had also taught in Buffalo, New York. And his father was was a churchman, very involved within the church. He led the singing within the church, Prospect Avenue Baptist Church to be exact. So Fosdick grew up in the church. His childhood 
came in the church. His discipleship began at a very early age. And when he was seven years old, Fosdick ended up making a profession of faith. He was convinced of the truths of Christianity and he asked to be baptized and to be received into the membership of the church. Now his mother was actually not very thrilled about this. She thought he was too young. He was only seven years old. What does he really understand about the Gospel? And because she was uncertain about this profession of faith, she made a small protest about it. But eventually, Fosdick convinced his family that he was resolved in his decision, that he was sure of his beliefs, and he was baptized shortly thereafter. Now, as Fosdick grew older, his beliefs began to drift in a decidedly unorthodox direction. As a young boy, he was exposed to many traveling evangelists. And they preached with the kind of preaching that he called hellfire and brimstone preaching. Now, I don't know if Fosdick is the one who coined that phrase, but we hear it a lot. We've heard it a lot. And so this designation has been around for some time. And this is what he said these traveling evangelists preached. A hellfire and brimstone message. He recalled that these messages terrified him. He would go through bouts of depression as a young boy. He would weep uncontrollably at night for a fear of going to hell. And So as he grew older, he began to reject any point of doctrine that had anything to do with hell or judgment. He reacted by casting aside anything that had anything to do with what he had heard preached as a young boy. This, he believed, this doctrine of hell and judgment, he believed, could not possibly be biblical. There could not possibly be a loving God that would ever have a place called hell and would ever have anything called judgment against sinners. And so he rejected it at a very early age. He took this mindset with him to Colgate Theological Seminary, where he would then study under one of the most influential modernists of the time, William Newton Clark. And under Clark, and then later studies at Union Theological Seminary, Fosdick would eventually become a leading preacher of the modernists. Preaching that there is no hell or judgment that this is simply old baggage of dead orthodoxies, that the biblical writers were not authoritative guides to Christianity, that the cross of Christ was not an atonement made on behalf of sinners to satisfy the righteous wrath of God, because there is no wrath of God. In a word, he left the faith. Not by pursuing atheism or agnosticism, but by remaking the faith and remaking Christianity that fit his own predetermined beliefs. Now, the story of Fosdick is not an uncommon one. Many of us, perhaps, personally, know someone who at one time professed faith in Christ, and over time and for various reasons have drifted away. Some of these are very similar to Fosdick. They grew up in a certain environment where a graceless gospel was preached. Now there's nothing wrong. Hear me out on this. There is nothing wrong with preaching about hell and judgment. It's thoroughly biblical. And it is indeed a terrifying prospect. And there was perhaps no one else who preached on the realities of hell more than Christ Himself. 
Hell is biblical. And in fact, one of the most influential sermons that was ever preached on the continent of North America, and one that, frankly, some would argue sparked a great awakening on this continent, was by Jonathan Edwards, and it was called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That awakes some people. The problem is not hellfire and brimstone. The problem is hellfire and brimstone alone. Some have grown up in this kind of environment where there is no good news. There is no grace or gospel. They have grown up with this kind of unbalanced preaching And as a result, have ended up rejecting Christianity altogether, or like Fosdick, modifying it to be something that is unrecognizable to Scripture. Others have professed faith at one time, but after experiencing some of the temptations of the world, lure of money, fornication, intoxication, after experiencing some of these things that the world has to offer, they have concluded that following Christ is not a freeing pursuit, but is rather an oppressive pursuit. It's nothing but a bunch of do-nots and no freedom at all. Their hearts are drawn after what John calls the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. There is no desire for God. And so they leave behind their former profession. We all know someone like this. We all know someone like this. And if you don't, you will. You will. You will because this is promised to happen. And it is promised to be an experience that every Christian encounters. We should never be surprised when someone who has formerly made a profession of faith later renounces it for atheism or another religion or a distorted form of Christianity. We may be surprised at who is departing, but that it is happening should not come as a surprise. This isn't something that the Bible does not address, that the Bible does not speak to. It is something that the Bible warns us about and something that the apostles themselves had to deal with seemingly in every church. In every church. and Something even Jesus Himself experienced when one of His own disciples, one of His own followers, departed from Him and betrayed Him. Something that Christians will experience. John wrote of knowing that it was the last hour, he said, because many antichrists have gone out into the world. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. He is describing people who at one time had made a profession of faith, had joined themselves to the church of God, and who had departed by embracing a false gospel. Paul, at the end of his Life in 2 Timothy wrote of Hymenaeus and Philetus, who he says had swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already happened. Peter warned in 2 Peter. He said, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Here in our text this morning, we find Paul telling Timothy that in these last days we find ourselves in, some will depart from the faith. Paul wants Timothy and the church, by extension us, to prepare for the reality of apostasy. Apostasy is an old word that means to depart. It's a strong word. It's a word that many people don't use very often anymore, but it does convey the reality and the danger of what takes place when someone departs. 
They have become an apostate. This is apostasy. Paul warns Timothy and warns the church of this very thing. Now, there's a couple of reasons why this is, this is necessary. This is a necessary warning. For one, with Paul, it's a problem the church, particularly Timothy's church in Ephesus, is already dealing with. It's an issue they've already got going on. We've already seen in chapter 1 of this letter when we began in 1 Timothy that the Ephesian church has leaders among them that are teaching false doctrine. They are distorting the Gospel message to be a message about law-keeping. If you obey certain commandments, your obedience will be the very thing that earns your righteousness before God. That is how you are made right in His eyes. You need to abstain from certain things like foods that the law prohibits. You need to abstain from certain things like marriage because within marriage there are sexual relations and these are bad. There's false teaching within the church that has distorted the gospel message and is ravaging the church. And this message that they preached was anti-gospel at its core. And the church had to respond to it appropriately in order to preserve the gospel and to preserve the faith of the people within the church. This was a problem that the church had to address then And it is the one that she has to continue to address even now. There has not been one generation of Christians since the time that Christ ascended into heaven until this present moment that a church has not had to deal with these very things. That's the reality. What we are warned about. The second reason why this is necessary is because apostasy can be devastating to someone's faith. Not just the person who departs from the faith, but for the people of God. Those who remain faithful to Christ can nevertheless be greatly shaken by these realities. It can lead us to question, has the grace of God failed? Has the power of the Gospel been thwarted? I mean, Paul says in Romans that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. So if someone has embraced this Gospel and is now departing, does that mean that God has no power to keep His people? Is that what I'm witnessing when someone departs? Has His power been thwarted? Has sin overcome the Gospel? And it can lead us Doubt the goodness of God and the truthfulness of the Gospel itself. So to guard our faith and to help us persevere, Scripture teaches us that apostasy will happen. Do not be shaken by this because you have already been told about it. But even more, it helps us to understand what apostasy actually is. We see four things about apostasy from this text. Number one, apostasy is spiritual. Fundamentally, it is spiritual. Apostasy is spiritual. Number two, apostasy is communal. It happens within community. Apostasy is communal. Number three, apostasy is self-righteous. It's self-righteous. And number four, apostasy is unbiblical. I'm going to look at those things as we make our way through this text. First, apostasy is spiritual. Meaning it's not primarily a matter of the intellect or of someone's experience, but a spiritual problem. It is a devotion to a spirit other than the spirit of Christ. Someone is leaving the faith or departing from the faith. There may be intellectual reasons that are given when this happens, but at root, Scripture teaches us, the revelation of God teaches us, this is a spiritual matter at its core. Paul says in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says, 
that in later times, some will depart from the faith. They will apostatize by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The later times, latter times, describes the period of time from Christ's ascension into heaven onto the throne of God into the present time and leading up to His second coming. All of that space in between, those thousands of years in between, are the later times. The apostles were living in the later times. We are living in the later times. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says that in the last days there will come times of difficulty because people will be lovers of themselves and of money, proud, arrogant, lacking in self-control, and living in all other manners of wickedness. And he tells Timothy there in that chapter, avoid such people. Which tells us that those last days had already arrived. Timothy is exhorted, avoid such people because within his own day, they were already there. The last days were something the apostles experienced and the one that we live in currently. It is the final stage of history leading up to the coming of Christ. And Paul says that in these times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They had at one time embraced the faith. right? They are departing now from something they had embraced before. And now they're leaving. And their departure, he says, is a result of listening to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's a spiritual influence. That's a spiritual influence at its core. That's what you see with Judas when he betrayed Jesus. You can read in John's Gospel, right before he went to betray Christ, we are told Satan entered into him. Spiritual influence. It's what you see with King Ahab in 2 Chronicles, where the prophet Micaiah says that a lying spirit will speak through the false prophets of Israel and entice King Ahab to believe a lie. To go into a war and to a battle that the Lord will not be present with him at and he will die. But these lying spirits speaking through the false prophets will convince him that this is the Word of God. Spiritual influence. Scripture teaches us that we are ultimately in a spiritual warfare. That we must put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It says that if someone doesn't follow Christ, they follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. With all acts of disobedience and with all false religions and all idolatry at its root, there is spiritual influence behind it. Friends, that's a sobering truth. That's a sobering reality. It is a truth as well that doesn't allow us to look upon those who do not believe in Christ or who are departing from the faith with disdain or an air of superiority. It is a truth that summons us to have broken hearts And hands lifted up in prayer because ultimately something like apostasy is a spiritual issue and therefore it requires a divine work of God to remedy. When someone leaves the faith, we cannot cast them out with some attitude of disdain. Friends, this is a moment of grief. Because what we are witnessing in those very moments is someone who has been profoundly influenced by a spirit other than the Spirit of Christ. And if that continues, they will be leading themselves to an eternal judgment because they have rejected Jesus as King. 
It is a moment in which we have to realize we are in a greater battle than something we see with flesh and blood. We are in a spiritual battle that requires the power of God and therefore it calls upon us to be a people of prayer. A people who depend upon God for help. But second, apostasy is also communal. It is communal. It happens within community. Paul says that those who depart from the faith will do so by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. But that doesn't mean they go into a dark room, light some candles, and then summon Satan to come speak to them. Spiritual warfare and the teachings of demons is not like a scene from The Exorcist where bodies are levitating and furniture is flying around the room and heads are spinning. Spiritual warfare is something much more subtle. Something much more normal. It's appealing. And it comes through a sense of community. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. He says that devoting oneself to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons comes through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. It comes through people. Teachers. Leaders. False teachers and those who have embraced false teaching to be exact. Paul calls them liars. That's his conclusion about them. But he says they deceive with insincerity or hypocrisy. That is how they deceive. Now think about what hypocrisy does. It puts on an outward show. Does it not? It appears to be right. It appears to be godly. It's when someone presents themselves ultimately as something they're not. In the case of false teachers, they present themselves as spiritual people, godly, pious, devoted followers of Christ, accurate communicators of His truth. But they're not. They put on a show Because pretending to be godly may earn them wealth. It's a means of gain. Godliness is a means of gain for some of them. Or it gives them power and influence over others. Or it establishes a name and a reputation for themselves. That is their ultimate motivation for being teachers of the Gospel. And a Gospel that is distorted. But it's all a show. Inside, Paul says, their consciences are seared. They're unresponsive to wrongdoing. Now, if some part of your body right, was seared, what happens? The nerves. You can no longer feel anything. There's no pain there. It's burned. And what happens with a conscience when it has become seared is the very things that should influence the conscience, the Word of God, the things that should cause us to depart from evil and wickedness are no longer there. There's no feeling. There's no fear of God. The cutting of the Word of God is no longer felt. and The shouting of the conscience is no longer heard. A person becomes deaf the very truths of God. And this is what false teachers are like. On the the inside, the Word says. But on the outside, they are people who you might respect. Who might appear humble and meek and godly. They gain for themselves a following. So obviously, people are, are attracted to these teachers. They were leaders within this church at Ephesus. So obviously people loved them. Believed that their teaching was right and good and beneficial for their souls. Whether it's an attractive 
personality or character or their charisma or their communication abilities or their accomplishments. People are drawn to them. That's what I mean by apostasy being communal. When someone departs from the faith, they never do it in isolation. It's never a matter of them being by themselves and becoming convinced that the faith is no longer true. They do it with the approval of peers. They do it with others surrounding them. They do it with the guidance of someone who appears to have their best interest in mind. They do it with a community of people encouraging them and urging them that this is indeed the right thing to do. This is morally upright. Friends, that's part of the reason why Christian community is so important. Why the church is so necessary in the life of the believer. Rare is the man who loves the body of Christ and departs from it. Rare is that person. It is usually the case that a person begins to separate themselves first from the life of the body, before they eventually depart from the faith. Christian community is indeed important because it is a safeguard from the influence of false teaching. Now, the third point about apostasy is that apostasy is also self-righteous. Apostasy is self-righteous. In verse 3, Paul says that the false teachers of verse to forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. There are many theories as to exactly who these false teachers in Ephesus were. Some argue that they were an ancient group called the Gnostics, Gnostic Christians. Others argue that these were the Judaizers, like who you find at the church in Galatia. It's hard to be certain about who exactly they were, but it's clear that among the early churches, especially within the Mediterranean area, the same false teaching was popping up in multiple churches, in Ephesus, in Corinth, in the church at Colossae. In Corinth, there were some who taught it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. They either viewed the body as being sinful and therefore sexual relations as being necessarily bad, or they believed that we were already in the kingdom of heaven, that the resurrection had already occurred, and therefore we had become like the angels who do not marry, and therefore we should abstain on these grounds. Neither of these conclusions were right. Neither of these conclusions were accurate to Scripture. And so Paul had to write to the Corinthians and correct them. And he says in verse 3 of the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians, "...the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband." He had to correct this false teaching among the Corinthians. In Colossae, there were some who apparently forbid certain foods. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Do not taste. There are certain foods that the teachers within the Colossian church were saying, You cannot eat as a Christian. And here within the Ephesian church, both the Corinthian and the Colossian errors are present. You have the forbidding of marriage and the avoidance of sexual relations, as well as the required abstinence from certain foods. Now in all of these cases, the false teaching is an add-on to the Gospel. It's an addition. The Gospel tells us that by the free grace of Christ 
And on the basis of His finished work on the cross, for us, we are made righteous before God. That is the good news. We in ourselves, by nature, are sinful and fallen creatures. We have hearts that from birth go astray and desire evil. There is no amount of personal reformation that can make our hearts new before God. And so the Gospel communicates to us and gives us the hope and the truth that what God has now done in Christ is to transform us. He has done a sovereign work to make us new. To do something that we ourselves could never accomplish. That is the Gospel message. That is how we become right before God. As we trust in His work on our behalf. The false teachers come in and say, No! This is not the Gospel. In order to be righteous before God, you must also abstain from marriage in certain foods. And if you keep yourself away from these things, then you'll really be righteous. Then you'll have a right standing in the presence of God. Then the promises of heaven will be for you. There is an extra level of spirituality you will have if you practice these things. What is called asceticism. Denying yourself certain things to become more spiritual than those around you. And if you do these things, you will indeed be even more spiritual than those who profess to know Christ already. Friends, that is the definition of self-righteousness. That by your own actions or your additional requirements to the Gospel, you are in greater favor with God. That is the height of arrogance. God gives us grace freely. And the morality and the ethics and the kingdom living He calls us to is all on the basis of that finished work on the cross of Christ. We have experienced as Christians the freeing grace of God. We've been set, we have been set free from sin. And on the basis of experiencing that grace and the joy of knowing God, now we act. We seek to please our Father in heaven because we love Him, not out of a sense of oppressive duty, but out of joy and love. Self-righteousness, essentially, 86 is that. Does away with it altogether. It says, no, no. To be right with God requires additional commandments. So apostasy is self-righteous. We see it taking place within the Ephesian church. Now fourth and final, apostasy is also unbiblical. Apostasy is always unbiblical. This should be self-explanatory when you're departing from the faith. Certainly you are leaving what is biblical, but it is worth clarifying. That apostasy is unbiblical, meaning that when a departure of faith occurs, the person who is departing almost always misunderstands the Gospel and the Word of God. They almost always get the Gospel wrong. At the end of verse 3, and then continuing down to verse 5, Paul corrects the false teaching that is prevalent within this church with biblical truth. Of the foods that are being prohibited, Paul says that God created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then he explains, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. It is made holy by calling upon God to bless these very things and to praise Him and to give Him thanks for these very 
provisions. But notice, he says that everything created by God is good. Now, that's almost an exact quotation from Genesis chapter 1. After God had created everything within the world, and ultimately man and woman themselves, He declared all of this very good. These false teachers missed this very obvious biblical truth because they had misunderstood the purpose and the function of the law of God and wandered off into vain discussions, as Paul says in chapter 1. And he also says in chapter 1 that the false teachers desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they were saying or the things about which they made such confident assertions. They didn't understand the law. They didn't understand the goodness of God in creation. They didn't understand the Gospel and nevertheless they had made themselves teachers of the people of God. And this is how apostasy always works. It's how departing from the faith always works. It comes through misunderstanding foundational biblical truths. There is always a distorted view of God or a distorted view of man. A distorted view of salvation or a distorted view of grace. Other false teachers we find throughout the New Testament and people falling away from the faith, it often involves them pursuing sexual immorality and all other kinds of wickedness on the base of wrongly understanding grace. They believe that because they've been saved by the grace of God and forgiven of their sins, that now allows them and gives them the permission to live in this world however they please. It's a misunderstanding. And a distorted view of grace. Sometimes it's the case that a person can communicate accurately what the Gospel is while also rejecting it. But more often than not, there is a very basic misunderstanding of the Gospel or the whole Bible itself. There's a doctrine that is overemphasized, a truth that is neglected, or some other philosophy or religion that is inserted into Scripture. When Harry Emerson Fosdick rejected the Gospel, he did so because he was reacting against a distortion of it. He was reacting against a graceless Gospel. And he ended up overreacting and embracing a non-Gospel. An almost Gospel. Friends, don't ever allow a distortion of the Gospel to keep you away from the joy of knowing the truth of the Gospel and Christ Himself. Don't allow the hypocrisy of false teachers or even the hypocrisy of Christians who have fallen into sin rob you of the fellowship of the church. I hear this far too often in conversations of people who have for some reason or another are not attending church anymore or have rejected Christ and Christianity altogether. They tell me, I left the church. I departed from the faith because there's too many hypocrites in the church. My question is, why would you allow the sinfulness of a sinner rob you of the joy of knowing Christ? We confess as Christians and as members of the church of God that we are still sinners. We have a battle between our flesh and our old man and what has been created new in Christ, the new man. And Sometimes we fail and we fail miserably. And sometimes we sin and we sin horribly. But why would that ever allow you or cause you to depart from Christ Himself? Why would that cause you to depart from the perfection of the Son of God? The sin of sinners should not rob you of the joy of the perfection of the perfect Son of God. 
The Son of God was sent into the world to rescue us, to remake us, to give us His Spirit so that over the course of our lives, we would grow in a deeper knowledge of God and a deeper love for the people of God and a deeper repentance so that when we sin, we would confess and we would repent to one another. The Gospel does not make us perfect immediately. It makes us sinners saved by grace who are daily repenting of our sin. No, friends, hypocrisy, sin, things that will exist within the church, things that are promised in the New Testament and we see within the early churches as existing, these things should never keep us from And these things will never be an excuse before God to keep us from Christ. There will never be a man or a woman who will stand in the judgment of God and declare, I never followed you because your followers were sinful. The response would very clearly and obviously probably be, what about my perfect Son of God? What about Him who died for No, friends, hypocrisy should not keep us from the joys of the Gospel and sin should not keep us from the joys of the Gospel. Scripture tells us that sin will exist within the church and it tells us that apostasy will happen. People will depart from the faith. But it also gives us very sweet promises. That the people of God that those who have heard the Gospel and by the power of that Gospel have been sealed with the Spirit, those who have the root of the Gospel deeply implanted within them, they will never depart from Christ. Christ the Great Shepherd will never lose one of His sheep. That is a promise to all of the people of God. The very reason why those people depart, why others depart, we saw in 1 John. They were never of us. They had received the Gospel at one time with joy, but there was no root. There was no heart transformation. There was no Spirit of God sealing them and adopting them into His family. It was all a work of the flesh. A work of the will. And once the will failed, so also did the faith. That's promised to happen, but the promises for us is that Christ will keep us. That if we know Him and we have embraced Him and we have heard the good news of the Gospel, there will not be one who falls away and who departs because of the power of His grace. We ought to heed these warnings in Scripture and to be prepared for these very realities and to understand the exact nature of what is going on when someone departs. We also must embrace the promises and know for certain that God will keep His people. Would you pray with me, please?